Welcome to our podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Carrie. And And this this is Filter Free. and Carrie with Filter Free. Thanks for coming back today. We are here with an awesome mama. She's an advocate for addiction, domestic violence, and foster care, and we are so excited to have her today. So Jackie, how are you? I'm great. Uh, I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me on. I'm really excited. We're really excited to have you. We've been following you for a while, following your journey, and we've seen a little bit of what you've posted. So we're excited to dive into what your life is now and what it was in the past. So Yeah. So I guess, Jackie, if you'll kind of tell us the platform that you have, you've talked a lot about your struggles in the past and kind of what happened within your life that ultimately ended um, with two of your boys being removed and in foster care. So I guess, can you take us to the place where you had these two boys? How did CPS, I guess, is that what you guys call it where you're at? Uh, Yeah, we just call it DHS. Okay. DHS. So like, Take us back to that time. What did, what did life look like at that point? Um, maybe like how DHS got involved or wherever really you feel comfortable starting your your journey. Yeah, sure. DHS got involved in 2016. They knocked on our door. I was living with the boy's biological father at the time. We had been using drugs for a long time. That's actually how we met. Been using drugs. There was domestic violence in the home. It was just a very, very toxic, unhealthy situation for anyone to be in, much less kids to be in. I always took care of the boys. It was always me. I always did everything. I was there. I was not, obviously I was not sober and I was not mentally stable in that way, but Mm -hmm. I've always loved my kids with all I have. I was just in a spot that I needed help and I didn't really know how to get it. I was what I, the word I use is trapped. That's how I felt. Um, I was trapped in that place Um, after years and years of drug addiction and bad decision-making. It got me there. So October of 2016. Um, it was like the thick of it. I actually was, my mom and my sister-in-law had come down to take me to my brother's wedding up in St. Louis, six hours away. And I knew that he wasn't going to let me go basically. So I was planning this whole sneak out situation. And at the time when my mom showed up, he was asleep on the couch. The boys were asleep. So I went upstairs and got one, put him in the car. And then I went back. And when I went to go get the second boy, he had woke up and that caused a a very bad situation. It was very traumatic. It was, I mean, we were wrestling um, with one of the babies in between us, kind of playing tug of war. Um, It was just a bad deal. And the cops were called, of course, and it was a whole situation. That was his domestic um, charge that he actually had a charge for assault with a deadly weapon with intent to harm. So Mm -hmm. it was a big, big situation. And me being the battered woman that I was after all of that kind of died down, I actually went to the courthouse and told them I wasn't gonna, I didn't want to press charges against him. So that was like, red that was the red flag for the state to be like okay this isn't good and it took me a long time to realize that that was actually why they showed up was because of my decision making I wanted to blame anybody else and somebody had called on me and I knew it was somebody else that caused this to happen Mm -hmm. Uh, but it took two years ish for me to realize like that's why they showed up at my door wow okay so you said years and years of addiction and and like Alexa said I've kind of followed your page for a little bit are you comfortable sharing, you know, you were a, a young girl in childhood, 
was all that typical? And then I know that your father recently passed away or passed away. And I know the anniversary was recently, but is that what kind of catapulted you into like drug usage? Is it like a generational thing for your family or what, what does that background look like? So yeah, there's actually a lot of pieces to that. My addiction runs in my blood thick from both sides of my family up and down. And so I was already genetically predispositioned to it. And I actually started drinking when I was, well, my first drink was when I was 12, which was silly to even say, but I, I grew up around alcohol, everyone in my family, my parents, grandparents, whatever it was, that was just what you did when you got together, or were doing stuff. There was always alcohol present and people were drinking. So I was like, okay, this is normal. So I had my first drink at 12 when I stole liquor out of my mom's liquor cabinet. That was the first time I was exposed to alcohol, which was my first drug of choice, I guess, if you will. And then in high school, I continued that and I just kept drinking. Everybody else was partying. That was like what everyone was doing. And it didn't occur to me that I was drinking longer and heavier than everybody else. And I was always drinking to like blackout or like, let's see how drunk we can get. And everyone else was like, no, I just want to hang out, you know? And so that was another indicator that I had a problem. And then it was pretty much just alcohol through high school. And then, yeah, my dad passed away when I was 19 and it was sudden and traumatic. And that is what catapulted me into the drug world because it made me, you know, it took away the emotional side of things for me. Um, I already wasn't very emotionally mature. I was 19, number one. But then when that happened, I just didn't really know how to handle it. And so the drugs numbed that for me. And I just, I just, when I do things, I just, I go all out. And so I just kept going and uh, it just fed off of each other and it ended up, that's how I got even in connection with the boy's biological father. And yeah. yeah. How old were you when the boys, like when all that happened with the boys, the altercation that ultimately ended up in DHS being called? I was 28. So you had been using for a while. Yeah, it was a long time. It's funny. My best friend tells me all the time when she when just looking at me, she's like, you would never know that you did that much hard drugs with the way that you look and the way your teeth are. (laughs) And, (laughs) and I'm like, well, I got, I'm just very fortunate in that way because it doesn't usually happen that way. So when, when you're like, uh, when you're in that addiction and you have these babies and you, cause that's my thing is I feel like there's a lot of biological parents that you, there's a lot of bio parents who I'm like you know, you question like, do they really care? Do they not? But then there are some who, you know, that they love these kids, right? When, especially when they're being removed, they show up to visitation. They, they want to do all these things. But like, when you're in the mix of it, do you know, I'm one phone call away. If someone tips, you know, calls DHS or like, if I do something wrong, that maybe, maybe my kids would get taken away. Like, is that even a thought that crosses your mind when you're in the midst of it? Or are you just so like, I'm going to take care of these kids and then take care of your addiction too. So for me, it was pretty much tunnel vision. Honestly, I, I, I couldn't really process a whole lot. All I knew was that I had to do this plan. I had to do exactly what they put in front of me. At that point in my life, I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a job, a home, a car. I didn't have like anything. And so that's literally all I had to focus was on was I'm going to get my kids back and here's the plan for what I have to do. And for me, that's it. I just, I needed a step-by-step. I needed help. I needed support. I needed accountability. I needed everything that came with having an open DHS case, which is crazy to say now, but it was absolutely like the best thing that could have happened to me with the way that it played out. And I know that doesn't happen for everybody, but for me, I just relied heavily on it. I I had a goal and that was what I was supposed to do. And I was going to achieve it basically. When you had the boys and you say you, like you had no support when all that happened, did your family know that you were in heavy addiction and they just kind of wrote you off? 
So my family knew for a long time that I was in heavy addiction. The way that that works kind of, I guess you burn all your bridges a long time ago and you're emotionally destroying them as I, you know, I was out there just doing heinous things and not caring about anybody and just putting my family through all kinds of turmoil. And at some point, this is what I advocate for people that come to me and ask me about addiction recovery. They have a loved one in addiction. Um, They're struggling. They don't know how to help them. And I always tell them, you know, at some point you have to take care of yourself and you have to set your boundaries for yourself mm-hmm. and for them so that you're not encouraging them to continue their lifestyle. And you're also making sure that you're not sacrificing yourself at their expense when they're not ready to get better. Um, and so my family did that. They did that a long time before I actually got clean. Um, my mom is one that, that always, always held out hope, even though she had to separate herself from me. Mm-hmm. but yeah, I didn't have anybody. It's interesting your perspective because we do see, I remember one time we had these, um, it was, a out in a rural County somewhere and it was the middle of the night. And I guess the cops were following this car and they knew it was like a potential drug deal. Anyways, they had these babies in the car and, uh, they stopped at the drug house, went in, got stuff, came away, driving off cops, get them. They, you know, they uh, get the babies out and they find all these drugs. Well, come to find out the mom that was in the car, she, they asked her, like, do you have anyone that can come and get these babies? You know? And, um, she had burnt her bridges with her family. Her, her dad was like a judge somewhere in a, you know, in a different County. And he would have checked out. And, um, but she had burnt her bridges so much that she knew that that, like they had put up those boundaries with her because they had tried, she'd been in her in addiction for a while, you know, and they had tried to get her help and all the things. And her dad had just made a firm stance on like, do not call this is my boundary with you. And it was kind of a tough love. And so it took her kids being removed for her light bulb to go off and, you know, where she, but that boundary, I mean, I'm sure that has to be hard, but sometimes it's interesting, you know, just kind of learning if it's, if it's like a generational thing, or if when, as far as your family support, like sometimes those family members genuinely do have to just put up, put up boundaries. Yeah. And, and a lot of times in situations like that, there is a family member that tends to want to help wants to love them to death basically like even though they know that they're not really helping helping them they're enabling them they just continue on because they can't not do it and there was not one of those in my family there there most of the people in my family were hard boundaries set but also I they all live six hours away from me so even if they wanted to like show up and check on me they couldn't you know so things may have played differently if it was in the same, if we all lived in the same town. Yeah. What about did uh, the biological dad, did he get a service plan as well? He did. And he, in his true fashion, did just minimal amount enough to try and make it more difficult on me, basically. It was never about the kids for him. It was about using the kids as pawns to control and manipulate me and, you know, hold them over my head or just use them as weapons. Basically, it was never about loving them ever. Wow. That's tough. So I just have so many questions. <laughs> You're dealing with your addiction, plus dealing probably with embarrassment and judgment on yourself. You feel like a shit mom and you're in this terrible relationship. Like, how do you pull yourself up? Yeah. What are you reaching to? Is, is it God? Is it just the boys? Like, how how did you do that? So I think it was for a long time, I knew that the life that I was living was not the life for me. Like I knew that I was meant to be somewhere else. I knew that, you know, I could even look around at the people I was around and, you know, without being harsh, I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm better than this. And this is not going to be my life because in that lifestyle, there's plenty of people who are just complacent or like, I'm cool with this lifestyle forever. I don't care who I hurt. 
and I was over there like not me like I'm I'm just still trying to cover my emotional damage and not ready to face that and then got to the point that I didn't know how to get out because I was in an extremely controlling and abusive relationship so I think that plays a big role in it that for I mean I would say for years even after the boys were born I didn't want to go back to that lifestyle I just felt like I didn't have anywhere else to go you feel like it was easier like it was easier for you just to to stay complacent instead of like leaving um no it wasn't easier it was uh Honestly, at the end, it was because he had made it to where I had no connection. I had no place to go. I had no, I had no phone. I had no money. I had no car. I had nothing to like survive on my own. And that was towards the end. And in the beginning, it was kind of like that too. After the boys were born, I was living in St. Louis with my mom, but she has like a one bedroom house and two dogs. And so it was her two dogs, me, two babies. And it was like, oh, this is not where I want to be either. And I also wasn't I wasn't ready to like go through everything you have to go through and face when you decide to get clean and change your life. Plus I had two babies to take care of. And I was just like, I don't really know how that's going to happen. Can I just ask a question too? Were the twins, was that like, do y'all have twins in your family or was, were you like, Oh no, I'm going to have two. So identical twins are just like a phenomenon. That's just God being like, here you go. (laughs) So that it was just fraternal twins run on in your genes but it actually runs on the mom's side and I don't have any fraternal twins on my side so they were just it was just a wow a happening yeah I'm a firm believer that God gives you twins if you can because you can handle them wow yeah. <laughs> all right so they give you this service plan and I mean are you still living with dad like how do you where do you even start so I was living with him in a garage apartment which is his parents funded that place that's how we survived and so I was still living with him he didn't really put up too much of a fight anytime I tried to leave and to go do my classes or the visitation or whatever and I think that's just because he knew he had eyes on that on him if he would have done something it would some people would have known so I you know left the house to go do my things but I was honestly I was still using for those like four months I guess before I before I left him were they drug testing you uh yes yeah. I had them pretty well fooled. I mean, addicts and themselves are pretty good manipulators and just like know how to play a situation. It's just how you survive like that. Mm-hmm. And I had them all, even my counselor pretty well fooled that I was clean. And then they had me drop a drug test and I was like, mm, well, I'm not going to pass that. So I think I, I think I passed. I mean, I think I failed two of them, honestly, while that was going on. But they also knew the situation that I was living over there still. I didn't have anywhere else to go. I didn't. Yeah. I just, that's where I was, you know, and the most help I was getting with my addiction was the counseling. Yeah. Were you allowed to have visitation together or did you have to have separate visitation? There was a couple, I think maybe just in the beginning we did together because I have like some videos and stuff where he's there. But I think after they realized that I was doing way more than what he was doing, they had us do separate visitation to kind of see like, okay, well, what, what, if this is what mom's doing, what's dad going to do? Yeah. Do you feel like you were supported through that service plan? I do. I feel like I was. I mean, I had I had parenting classes. I had, you know, counseling. I had group counseling. I had domestic violence classes. So I I mean, everything like kind of covered covered it all. Was it helpful or was it kind of a joke? So it was helpful, but I have been, I mean, I've been to multiple rehabs before. So it was like all information that I already knew that I had acquired before and honestly, things like that, it's going to be helpful if you want it to be helpful. If somebody that's going through it, if you want to look at it as a joke and 
you know, everything that they say is true. Everything that they say is valuable information. It's just, are you going to take it in and apply it? Or are you just going to shrug it off and pretend like you don't need to be there? You know, and that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest things that I, that I coach and I teach people. It's like, you have to be accountable for where you're at, you know? Yeah. And if, if you're not accountable or don't think that you've gotten yourself to the place that you're at and you're blaming other people, then you're never going to be willing to accept the help for it, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about the foster family. It's my understanding that y'all have, y'all created a good rapport and y'all still have that contact. What was that like initially? Were you, did y'all meet right out of the gate? Was there some reservation there on, on her side, her family side to meet you or? So it's kind of complicated. It's all complicated really, but they are actually technically related to the biological father. So it's Bobby and Brittany are the foster parents and Bobby is his cousin. Okay. So the boys are boys are technically related to them, but I didn't know them. I had never met them. I had never been in the same room with them. I think maybe Brittany was somewhere that I was one time, but we had never had a conversation. And and I and as far as his family goes, they're just not good people. And so it was stressful. I remember I remember when they got moved over to their house from the first place that they were, uh, because it, the boys are um, Native American, and when the tribe gets involved, they want them yeah. to go to a Native American home. And so I remember when they, I heard that they were switching over there and I messaged her, I, I got her number and I messaged her and I was like, I don't even know if you can talk to me, but I'm checking in. I just, I, I heard the boys were there. I'm wondering if they're, I'm wondering if they are there. I'm just giving you my number. So you know how to contact me and, you know, just letting her know, like I care and I'm paying attention and yeah, and I'm here, you know, cause she didn't know me at all. She didn't know yeah. anything about me. And she was receptive to that, to you? Um, she had her guard up in the beginning. She was, you know, she knew him and what he was just the type of person he was. So she, we actually had a conversation about this just recently, which is the first time we really talked about it in a long time, but she didn't know what to expect. She kind of was like, well, we'll see if anything happens. We'll see what, you know, if, if she's going to do what she's supposed to do. So she didn't really dis like disregard me, but she didn't eat. She didn't like expect me. She didn't really expect much. She was going to let me kind of prove where I was at. Were they foster parents already or did they become foster parents or kinship? Yeah, they they went through the whole process in order to take the boys. Wow, that's a lot. That's awesome. That's a lot. What about your first caseworker? Was that was that a good relationship? Like Alexis kind of asked already, did you feel supported through that? Well, so the actual caseworker that was on my case ended up going on medical leave like right after. Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't meet her in the beginning. So they, they put me like a temporary one, I guess, or whatever. And ironically enough, her name was Karen and she was absolutely a Karen. She was no bueno. She was hateful. She was judgmental. She hung up on me multiple times. She uh, looked down on me. She ignored me. She absolutely just like made me feel like the smallest person in the world. Well, that was her intention. Really, it just pissed me off. And yeah, I just if if she would have stayed my caseworker, it could have been entirely different. Because in that situation, no, with her, I would have not feel supported. I felt like she was 100% just expecting me to fail and to adopt out to whoever. Every episode when we have someone on, we have very similar stories. Like the really? case made or break my case because I didn't have support or they were burnt out or they were on medical leave and I got a temp and they didn't care. They didn't even know who I was. It's just so frustrating. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. 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 
Alexis and I have talked a lot about even just with everybody, you know, we want it to be, we want the podcast to be a platform where people can talk about the good, but also the bad, because it's important to bring light to, I just want workers if they hear it, right? If you're not in it and you're not advocating because family reunification is the goal. And unfortunately we, I mean, in my experience, I didn't get to see that a lot. And, but then there were cases where I saw a mama one time, she caught a bus from, I don't know where to make it to downtown court. It was pouring down rain. She was in a dress that I'm sure she borrowed because it was way too small. She was soaking wet, but she got her butt to court and she stood up there and that judge was talking to her. And she literally said, I've tried to call my caseworker. This is the phone number I have for her. No one's called me back or she hung up on me. And I just remember hearing her say all that. And I was like, if that were me, I like, how, how do you expect someone to get their kids back? If you're not doing, if you're not like meeting them where they're at, you know what I'm saying? And like, and trying to get them to do more, but also like just giving them the little bit. And there are some good caseworkers out there who make foster parents lives, you know, much better, who make the parents who are working services much better. But there are also some that like are almost more of a roadblock, you know? And that's, what's frustrating. I'm like, if your time is done, if you are burnout, then get out. Like go find right. a different avenue that you can serve these kids if that's still where your heart's at. But when we were emailing back and forth, you had mentioned there was a worker that if I, she would have stayed on my case, it could have been different. And just think about that. I mean, where your life is now, that's like traumatizing to think, you know, that, and then it's awesome to see like one person genuinely and another worker who came in and really championed you truly helped you get along. Well, yeah, I mean, already feeling helpless and out of control in a situation like that. It, and you have a caseworker where your fate is literally like in their hands on how you're able or not able to follow through with your plan and go forward. Yeah, that's scary. And I know, I know that that's the case for a lot of people. Like I'm very fortunate that my actual caseworker who came back from medical leave and was, was my caseworker was amazing and helpful and supportive and believed in me and cared about what was happening and was on my side. I, I know that that made such a difference. Did you have an attorney? Like, did y'all get I did. I had a, a court or, or a court appointed attorney. So mm-hmm. she didn't, I mean, I think I met with her like twice ever, you know, like, yeah. I was going to say, was that relationship? Like, was it just like, Hey, we're about to have court what's going on? Or? Yeah. 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 There was no actual relationship there. I think I called her a couple of times and never got a call back. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll see you at court. Yeah. So pretty much, did you just feel like, look, I've got to do what they put before me because ultimately like, you know, you do hold a lot of weight, but I mean, you couldn't let another caseworker until this better one came back, but like you basically just were in the mindset, like I've got to do what they, what they said I have to do type thing. Yeah. And I, I just didn't think about or focus on anything else. I mean, it's not like I had anything else to focus on anyway. I was miserable in my life. And so, you know, I just kept telling myself that like, basically that's what you do in recovery too. It's just take the next step. You just do the next step and you just go through the next day and you don't think too far in the future and you just do what you know you're supposed to do and then get on to the next day. And that's how I did it. Well, but honestly, and I don't think I even shared this part with you guys. You may have seen it on my, on my um, Instagram, but the part where I, the only reason I ever even got away from him though, was because I, I jumped out of the second story window. I saw that. I need you to tell me about that. Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, it's extreme. Uh, There's just a lot of really extreme parts of my story. And most of the time when it comes up in conversation, even with my best friend who only like, she's my best friend now. And gets little bits and pieces of it even still now things that I say to her she's like what are you serious you know like it's it's kind of wild yeah so July 31st in 2017 my case was open in March so four months four months after the case was open 
I, yeah, I had enough. I was, I was, I was, I remember sitting on the couch and he had started his ridiculousness that was going to lead to a fight that was going to lead to a brawl and all the things that I knew was, it was coming to. And I just, I sat on the couch. And in that moment, I remember thinking to myself, like, I am so done with this. Like, this is, this is it. I am not doing this anymore. And so he, he was whatever, chasing me around the house and doing his thing. And I couldn't get down the stairs to get out. And so I, climbed out of the second story window and I held onto the windowsill as, and lowered down as far as I could. And then I pushed my feet off the house and I, I just jumped backwards. I landed mostly on my feet um, on the gravel. And I knew I had like a very small second, like a very small window to, to get going where I was going. And he came bolting down the stairs and I was running towards the driveway and he tackled me in the driveway on the gravel. Um, I was screaming and hollering. He was shoving gravel in my mouth to make me stop screaming like um yeah we have like we had like the chain link fence right there and I told myself like I held on right like held on with my hands and I dug my feet under it and I was like I am not letting go from right here and he was like trying to pull me back pulled my hair was like literally trying to drag me back into the house and we lived in an industrial park and so there really wasn't houses around us which is why nobody was there Um, But there just so happened to be like a 10 year old girl, maybe she was around that age that drove by or rode by on her bike. And the second that he saw her, he like let go of me and got off for a second, because then that's like a witness for what he's doing. And the second he let go of me, I just jumped over the fence and I ran and I went to where she was. She happened to have a cell phone and I called the cops and, and that was it from there. And I got an emergency protective order and wow, that was that was really the only reason that I got away from him. That's wow. wild. So even yeah. with CPS or even with DHS involved, like it still took you ultimately just taking it upon yourself to like save yourself. Yeah. And you know, it never really occurred to me until I was doing another interview the other night and she was like, okay, but DHS knew that you were in this relationship. They knew that you didn't have anywhere to go and they didn't have any solutions for where you could go or what you could do. And no, they didn't. They, I mean, I don't know if there's not like a, I don't know if there's like a battered woman shelter here, like someplace you can go for an extended amount of time. I just, I, I was never guided on, on that aspect. It was kind of like, here's your plan, figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's why sometimes I feel like um, we're setting people up for failure because sometimes I do feel like you're finding people sometimes at their lowest and you're like, here are 14,000 hoops. And on our end, we want the biological family member that they're being removed from, we want them to do and prove themselves that you're, you really are going to get these kids back and, and can protect them and, and take care of them. But sometimes I'm like, we're asking you a lot. And I mean, if you don't have a car, you can't just magically make one appear, right? If you don't have a cell phone, that's what makes the world go round these days. It's like, how are we, like, how are we helping? We've had a lot of cases where the kids go back to bio parents because they jump through all the hoops and then they're going back to a house with no running water, no electricity. It's like how... And they're going to come back into the system. So at what point do we say, hey, we got to help you? Yeah, you can right. do all things, but at the end of the day, you're, you're still in poverty. You still can't get it together. It's I just, I don't know where that fine line is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because coming back from having nothing and, and literally nothing is hard to do for anybody, much less somebody that's in that particular situation and trying to prove themselves as a fit parent. I remember I had, I had, um, applied for a credit card secretly away from him. So he didn't know so that I had something mm-hmm. that I could rely on. It was $300 was my credit limit. That's all I had. So that's all I had to do anything in my life by myself was a $300 credit card. And I think that's how I got 
insurance on a car that my friend let me borrow, which was a ridiculous vehicle, but I didn't care. I didn't care. It got me to where I needed to go. And when I, before I had that, I was walking, I walked halfway across town to get where I needed to go. Thank God we live in like a relatively smaller town, but I was walking, you know, five miles to get where I needed to go for visitation because that was my only option. And I wasn't going to miss my visitation. You know. And were you, did you cold Turkey, like get sober? Did you go to treatment? When I finally got sober? No, I didn't go to treatment, but I had been in multiple rehabs. I knew the tools that I needed to apply to my life to get sober. And I eliminated all the people. And the place that I was, that I was using, like there were still a couple of people that, you know, I could have had contact with to, to go use, but they wanted, they knew the situation I was in. It was kind of like, I'm not going to support you in here. You go do get yeah. better. And so that was major for me, changing the people and the places and the things, which is like one uh, addiction recovery 101. That's what they always tell you is you have to change your people, places and things in order to get clean. So I use the tools from previous rehabs. I removed myself from where I was and the place that I, it's a long story about the place that I was staying. The first place I was staying was actually a trap house, which is, you know, where the, where the drugs all go and come from, because that was the only place I had to go, which was a mutual friend between me and the biological father. And then the place after that, this actual safe place I had to go was just a girl I met in one of my domestic abuse classes. So wow. connection. Yeah. yeah. I remember having the, the night that I jumped out of the window. I didn't know where the cop was like, where can I take you? And I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. And I was like, oh, I know where Julie lives. And so I had her drop me off at Julie's and knocked on her door. The cop knocked on her door and was like, hey, I have this girl here. And I'm in the back of the car like, can you let me in? You know, like... God, girl. I feel like I say this all the time, well, to a handful of people, but I don't know if you're in the works of a book, but you need to be. So I am going to write a book. Uh, okay. Yeah, I'm actually writing a couple ebooks right now, getting my okay. getting my feet wet into it. But yeah, people tell me that all the time. And I know in my spare time, I'll. Yeah, in all your spare time with all the kids <laughs> and being a wife and all yeah. the things. Yeah. So, yeah. I just, for me, we need more of like the we need more of the success success stories. We need to, like, I can remember when I had my LCPA license and all the things we have to go to these conferences and like do continuing education courses. And that's what keeps us to keep fighting, like to keep doing the good work. Right. And it's so refreshing. There's, you know, we have to listen to ethics and cultural competency and all these things, but like nothing is more rewarding than having a speaker or having someone at a, you know, like we have like a gallery of people and they set up booths and they have books and it's like, Hey, read this. And it's like these success stories that it's like, this is exactly why we do what we do because we want to see reunification truly in the 10 years that I've been doing this. Well, it's more than 10 now, but 10 in the CPA business, I probably could count on one hand, how many kids went home. And there's a lot of variables to that, but the ones that have gone home, you know, they they're thriving, they're doing well. And those, those parents really did the work that they needed to do. But unfortunately it's just not, and I don't know, I don't want to bash the system. I don't know. There's so many flaws and so many things that need to be better, but you know, there's a, not a lot of it to be helped be successful for our parents and for the families to stay together. And so I just hope that you know, I think you're doing an awesome job continuing to just spread your story. But I just think in a book or like public speaking or something, because you're just so relatable. Like, that's why I was like, I wanted you to get on. I feel like people hearing your story that takes you to their or takes them to your page because it's so relatable and it can put if it can put one foster mom's mind like, oh, yeah, this might be where that bio mom is thinking or what that feels like, because they don't know unless they've been an addict, unless they've recovered we don't know what that's like. And that's, that's something that stays in my mind. Cause I have people that ask me all the time, you know, what can I do? How can I support the bio mom? How can I, 
do this or that. And I actually am working on a couple different resources to, to give them just from my own point of view and my own perspective and like the top list of things that could help and yeah. um, kind of, kind of like that to help them give them support both for fostering and for addiction, because there's a lot of people out there that have a loved one who are, um, who's addicted and they just don't know what to do. They don't understand it and they can't wrap their mind around it. So if I can, I find myself being that bridge between there, like I'm, I, I feel like that's a, that's the place for me. Like that's a special, especially designed for me at this point, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. And the public speaking thing too, is something I'm working on. You'd be awesome at that. Yeah. Okay. So you're working your services. Did they ever change the plan? Like, was there ever a, a rough spot where it's like, Hey, these kids were changing it to, to termination or did it stay family reunification that whole time? It stayed reunification the whole time. That was always the plan. I think for and I guess because I was still doing all my things, even while I was still stuck over there. And I guess they saw that, that I was still doing all the things. Granted, I wasn't in a safe place, obviously, but I was doing everything else and showing up and, and doing all of that, that once I actually left there, it was a lot quicker. Like everything moved a whole lot quicker after that. And I, the only thing I can attest that to is that I w- had been showing up and doing all my things while I was, while I was still, while I still needed to get that safe place, you know? Yeah. So the boys were in care for 21 months. 21 yeah. months is what the overall yeah, overall time frame was. It like a slow transition, like letting the boys know that they're going home, letting you know, or was it like, okay, they're coming home tomorrow? What kind of, what, what did that breakdown look like? So I can't remember exactly what the timeline was, but I got overnight unsuper or no overnight supervised visitation my mom came down and they stayed for like four nights or something and that was like the first time when that was after I had gotten my own place and that was in September and then I can't remember exactly the timeline but then they came home for half the week so then they were home with just me like I think it was January maybe maybe December I don't really remember at that part it was Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays they were with me and then they went back to Bobby and Brittany's Thursday Friday Saturday and then mm-hmm. half of Sunday. And so we did that as a transitional time in between like, okay, they're not here at all to, oh my gosh, they're here 24 seven all of a sudden. And I think that half and half, I can't tell you how long that was that we did that, but that was, that was big. Helpful. That was a big help. Yeah, for sure. Because it was, I mean, going from not having your kids for that long to having them 24 seven and still, you know, becoming a normal productive member of society. Yeah. That's just a lot to have on your plate. Yeah. So that was really helpful doing the half and half. And then and they how old were they at that time? Two and a half. Two and a half. Okay. So, I mean, do you feel comfortable sharing like as they were transitioning home, what's their understanding? Do they, obviously you guys still have a relationship with Brittany and them. So it's like, do they, do they know much about it or what? So it's really weird timing, actually. I think because I keep talking about this stuff, I'm like, I have to tell the boys somewhat about it. But for them, I think, you know, even after the case was closed they still would go from Bobby and Brittany's back home Bobby and Brittany's back home they still go there on weekends we still see them on holidays like we just we our families are just kind of blended at this point uh-huh. and I think for them and their memory and everything it just has always been that way you know like they lived there for a while but I don't think that they I think it just kind of all meshes for them and so just this weekend actually I told the boys I told them a couple months ago about their biological father and that was a tough conversation to have for me they really weren't even affected. Did you tell them because or talk to them about it because they brought it up or just you felt like it was probably time? Well, the thing I wanted them to understand with Sean, they call Sean, Sean, but they see him as their dad. 
And so I didn't want somebody from school or one of their friends to be like, why do you call your dad, Sean? And then they'd be like, I don't know. They'd be like, oh, you mean your stepdad? And we just didn't, we just didn't want somebody else to break the news to them about any of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so Sean had been encouraging me saying, I think we need to tell him. Um, And I was trying to prolong that, but I, I ended up telling them and I'm proud of the way that I told them and how I referenced their biological father. And yeah, so that, that part was good. And then just this weekend, I told them that there was one more thing that I wanted to tell them. And I told them that they actually lived with Bobby and Brittany for a little while, while I was sick, while I was sick and unwell and had to get better. And Liam looked at me and said, did you have (laughs) COVID-19? Yes. Yes. Extended duration. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, and that was it, you know, like now they know and for them, their little brains right now, they're not going to have questions or process anything, but down the road, they're going to remember, you know, they'll know kind of what's going on. And I just, I feel lighter having told them that big, big part and they can read now. And, you know, they go over to Bobby and Brittany's and Ethan has, you know, social media and stuff. And I just blast our story everywhere. And I'm like, I don't want them to like see something and be like, mom, what's this? So I told them. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, it's not, they're not my kids, but I think transparency and, you know, my perspective on it is especially like even with like adopted kids and stuff, but just in foster care in general, it's not, I guess timing is just, you know, parent specific, but I feel like you got to be transparent. It's a part of their story. A lot of our kids look up and they don't have pictures because they didn't, you know, they maybe weren't around or didn't come to visitation or something like that. And they don't have pictures from a certain time frame. They're going to wonder why don't I have a, you know, why don't you have a picture of me when I was five or something? Yeah. And you don't, I mean, the way I saw it was that I didn't want them when they're older to find out about some things and then kind of internalize that. Like at the age that they're at now at eight, they, it doesn't, they don't do that. You know, it's like they, they'll ask questions as they come. And now that they have that information, they can ask as they get older and whatever they're comfortable with, you know? Absolutely. Do they have any kind of relationship with their biological father? Is he involved at all? Oh, no. He's in prison right now. And he's in prison because, this is another long, detailed, complicated part of our story, that protective order from when I jumped out of the window, because he had a felony charge connected to that, they couldn't finalize the protective order until the felony charge was finished. And so his lawyer, being the lawyer that he is, pushed out that felony case for 15 months. So I had to show up for this protective order every month for 15 months to say, yes, I still want this protective order because this is what he did. And their goal was Uh, to push me to just give up and be like, I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to do it. Like if I'm not the victim to the domestic charge, then there's nothing, there's nothing to charge him with. Well, I didn't do that. I was like, he has gotten away with everything in his life for as long as he's lived and I'm not going to let him get away with it anymore. And so I was traumatized every time I went back to court, but I did it anyway. And yeah. So then they finally put him on probation 15 months after that started for the felony charge. And then for two and a half years, he still wasn't doing what he was supposed to and continued to drop dirty and didn't go to NA classes meetings and didn't do any of the things. And so finally they revoked his probation probation and now he's in jail. I mean, prison. So. Wow. Yeah. I hate that for you. I mean, that, that, you know, and that's another part of the court system. It's like, there's so much more to the stories typically that like, cause for family court versus criminal court, it's different. And sometimes those can get sticky. And I feel like with family court, which is the foster side of it, it, you know, we don't know all the depths of the 
what could be criminal, you know, like nobody knows that you had to go to court every 15 months for that. And whether it was dur- the duration of the boy's case or not, it's just the principle that is traumatic. And I know that there's just so many things that happen in every, on all of our lives day to day that could be traumatizing and a trigger, but I just can't imagine with your kids being taken away, you have nothing rock bottom. You really have to want it and, and fight tooth and nail to really, to get back and to be where you're at today. So what about your husband? How, how did y'all meet? <laughs> so we actually, we actually met at that trap house that I was talking about. The night that I left over there was the same night that he was ending his relationship with the girl that he had been clean for three years. And then this girl had brought him down and he ended up using again. So he already had a taste of the sober life. He knew that that was the life for him and it was so much better, but here he was using again and just like miserable. And so we both met in this place where both of us were like, I'm so done with this life and I want to get well. I I wanted to get well for myself and my kids. And he wanted to get well because he had already known what it was like to live that life. And so we just kind of supported each other through that, through getting well and getting healthy. Um, And he was, he was a part of my life while all of the DHS stuff was still going on and they knew about him. They knew that he was there. And so that was like another layer of things, especially from the biological father who tried to make that seem like a bad situation. Um, And in a lot of cases it would be two addicts getting together is no, can be detrimental. And, you know, I just got out of this extremely abusive, toxic relationship and now here I'm with a man in my life, sort of, kind of, and it was all kind of sticky. But now here we are, six years later, married, still together, still clean. We have a new baby. Yeah, who's precious. Um, thank <laughs> you. What does he think about this whole, well, first of all, I guess the content, you get the boys back, you're with him, y'all are married, sober, living the life. How did all this content stuff happen? So my best friend now, her name's Chelsea. Three years ago, I found her on the internet. She was doing network marketing online, selling skincare and makeup. And I was working at Chili's at the time and I was watching her and just kind of got into her videos and kind of made a relationship with her. And she was like looking for people on to join her team and sell skincare and makeup. And I was like, I was like, Sean, I think I'm going to do this thing. I was like, this is so weird and random for me to do, but something's telling me that I should do this thing. And I was like, so I'm going to do it. And so I, I did it. And I actually did really well. And she helped coach me in the business part of it. And um, I started doing live videos and doing the whole shebang because when I do something, I go all out. And then she found out that I was in recovery and that she found out bits and pieces of my story. And she was like, you have to share this with people. And I was like, no, I'm not going to share it with anybody. Like the people on my Facebook know my life, like people I actually know, know that I went through hell and that I was just like this totally different person than I had ever been. But I was not comfortable sharing that. And she, uh, she actually had a cousin who was an addict and he actually ended up um, committing suicide. And she was like, you have to share. She was like, you don't understand that people don't just come out of where you came out of. Like, you have to share this. And so she forced me to start sharing. (laughs) But after I shared a little bit and I was so uncomfortable with it, so many people would come out of the woodworks and just be like, I thank you for sharing. And it resonated with me so much, or I'm super inspired, or I have this loved one that's struggling, or I also went through that and just like crazy things that people were saying to me. And I was like, I knew right then and they're like, okay, I have to keep sharing. And so it was like, okay, I'll just bear it all. And I will just share it all. And and it's been, it's been really cool. It's been really fulfilling. And I truly believe that it's 
a part of fulfilling my purpose and what I can do to, to help other people. And um, I truly believe God uses me to, to give to other people, give hope and inspiration and belief that they can do whatever it is that they need to do. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I love it. I mean, I, it's like, it's so social media is so weird. And I just feel like sometimes when you stumble across people, you, sometimes you can go down a rabbit hole. Like, I don't know you at all, but I'm, I'm so proud. I'm like, cause, and I guess cause the line of work, you know, I'm just like, there are some people, you know, I see it. There are some people who just don't are never can never get to where you're at, you know, and that's, it's, it's heartbreaking to know that there are kids who weren't able to be reunified and for whatever reason that might be, but it's so refreshing and so nice to know that with the right support and the right system set up that if everyone just takes it at face value, like we don't know anything about anybody's story, but just try and champion them, try and give people a chance because yeah, I think we did an episode recently and one lady was like, you know, just hugging someone genuinely can change their life. You know, like letting them know that you give a crap about them and that you're here to like, hey, I'm going to take care of your kids, but like get your stuff together. I mean, it could literally change someone's life and it keeps a family together. A lot of people look at the line of work we do and they're like, oh, you're just trying to keep the kids or, you know, you just want to adoptions and all this adoption for me is one of those things where if those kids cannot go home and they need a safe spot forever and ever, then there are families that are willing to do that. But for us, for me, like I love nothing more than see being able to see that. And so, you know, I know, I don't know you at all, but it is, it's so refreshing to like see you and your success and just like the gratitude stuff. Just, I mean, it inspires me. Like, you know, I feel like I've been doing well and I have have two boys and a husband and a home and all that, but like three things a day, like, what are you grateful for? Cause there's a lot of people who don't have even the small, you know, those three things. It's such a constant reminder and six years in that's awesome. And I hope that that continues for you guys because it truly is inspiring tons of people. And I mean, I can speak for myself that it's inspiring for me as well. And we're from two different walks of life. It's awesome. Well, that's, I mean, that's ultimate. I mean, that's always my goal. Like, I love that. I, I mean, I get messages like that from people a lot and that they don't go overlooked and I appreciate them. And a lot of times people are like, Oh, thank you for messaging me back. Like, I'm like, why wouldn't I message you back? They're like, I, I didn't expect you to. I'm like, well, would I just ignore you? <laughs> you know, like I'm not, and people say weird stuff when I'm out and about like, oh my God, you're TikTok famous. I'm like, don't say that. No, I'm not. But if there was any good reason to be recognized out and about, like that's, that's, I, I like that. And although yeah. it made me uncomfortable in the beginning, especially strangers telling me they were proud of me, I've realized like that's, but that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the goal, not about me, but just that, that they know and other people know that it's possible to completely change your life around. Um, we can point people to you, right? You're a, you're a resource that people can, can look into whenever they feel comfortable, whenever they feel ready. You know, I'm thinking of, I know an addict in my life, like it would be cool for him to be able to see like, Hey, you can get it together. Like you can have this and just being able to like use you as a resource is incredible. And I think, you know, for us, there are people who, who don't respond, who sometimes all this stuff, it happens so quickly when people are just flooding you that, yeah, sometimes I think you just can't keep up with all of it. And I get that, but then there are some who just kind of, it goes all to their head and they forget what the purpose is behind it, you know? So regardless of your numbers, regardless of whatever you go out and do, you know, just remembering that like the purpose is to touch people. And so that's why I guess for us, it's like, oh, she responded because we've run into those who are like, you know, seems like they're, they're not, don't have to. Yeah. Have. And I get, I guess somebody else told me that too. They're like, I've reached out to a couple other people and they didn't respond. And I'm like, but, you know, that's, that is the whole purpose of, of, it's not a, you know, popularity contest, but I do see it as, you know, how many people or how, how big of an impact, how much more of an impact 
can I make, especially when I start to get uncomfortable and sharing things or like feeling like, man, I, I'm just going to kind of retreat from this. It's like, I, I remember that it's not about me. It's, it's bigger than that. And, and if it's not my story that they resonate, a lot of people love Sean's story and resonate with what's going on with him. And the fact that we are together and have our story, is just like another, yeah, it's just, it's pretty. I love that he's so amazing. like kind of reserved and you're just like so bubbling out there and he's just, okay, whatever. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have to like drag him on. He's like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. I'm like, well, not everybody has that my kind of personality or has been doing it for three years getting in front of the camera. It's not a big deal to me anymore. I just hope that there's like a 19 year old who just lost their kid and they're in the midst of addiction or like they don't have support and their caseworker is like, hey, I've heard a podcast. Maybe you can relate to Jackie. Like that. that's my goal for this podcast. I just hope that we reach the people that we need to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Every time before I do a podcast, um, and I should do this before I post any kind of content too, but I, I say a little prayer about reaching about, you know, allowing the message to reach who it needs to reach. And I, I find when I do that, I get a little bit more clarity beforehand. And I also just remember and step outside of myself to share for that, for that person and for those people. And honestly, it's like, if it can help one person, then that's, it's worth know, it. then we're, we're doing it. Yeah. You know, we had a ding, ding, ding moment. Every episode, we usually have like something intertwines. And the whole time you've been talking, I thought about one of the girls, one of my foster kids. I met her when she was 15 and she actually came on an episode not too long ago and she's 21 now. She's a very similar story from yours. And I was like, man, she kind of reminds me of Chelsea. And then you said that your best friend's name was Chelsea. And I was like, yeah, there's always something that relates, you know? Yeah, that's really cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being willing to do this. Your story will be so, you know, it's so life-giving to so many people who really need it. And like Alexa said, I'm hopeful that it'll fall on somebody's ears. You know, we're not in it for, for all the the numbers and all, and we don't have all that, you know, we just simply were two people who love the line of work that we're in. And we took a step away from the hands-on, you know, aspect of seeing kids daily and seeing the foster families, but we still want the word out there for people and in and and all like areas, avenues, you know, we want everybody to understand that if collectively we can work together and advocate for the same thing, then hopefully our goal will be reached far more often than it, than it is at this point. For sure. And, and awareness for any of it is important. I mean, uh, just recently, the other day when I was doing an interview, they asked me like what my exposure to foster care was before all of this. And I was like, none. I, I didn't even honestly didn't even think about it. It wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even something that, that you think about it if you're not you know, touched by it in some way. So, I mean, just the more it's talked about, the more people can have eyes on, on all of it, really the, the foster care system, domestic violence, addiction, and, and, you know, make it a topic of conversation. That's not so uncomfortable, but it can be something that's um, beneficial. Sometimes it gets a bad rap. It gets a bad notion, but that's for everything, you know, and where there are good people, like there are good hearts out there that are in it and want the right things to be done and, and want to work together to see the positive end results. And so Again, that's why we're hopeful that just us doing this will hopefully touch people. Mm-hmm. So we'll keep doing what you're doing. We're we're proud of you. For what <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, thank you. I will. It was really nice to meet you guys. And thank you for, thank you for having me on. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Bye. 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 Guys. Bye.